should we say the should we say the name of the guest? Sure. Yeah. So this is today we have with us Adam Kolber. Indeed. Nice to be here. Extraordinaire. Now, given my habit of mispronouncing people's surnames, oh I suppose I could have uh, called you Adam Colbert, which might make people think of Stephen Colbert. Indeed. But now I've been told it's Colbert. It's Colbert. And his real name was Colbert, but he just changed it for, you know, public public entertainment. Right. Comedic effect. To, and, and quite successfully, I think. So you might want to consider that, Adam. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't think you should just rule it out out of hand. Sure. Well, it's so funny that he tries to give it a French pronunciation, despite the fact that his character had this sort of anti-France trait to him right. for so many years. Yeah, he made a fu- he made a funny in the in the, in the pre Colbert Report uh, Daily Show segment advertising the Colbert Report yeah. before it was the thing when it was just a shtick. He he made a funny about yeah. how it was French. That's right. That sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah. Um, should we disclose that that uh, we go way back, Adam? Absolutely. Uh, so Adam and I were classmates. Oh. Uh, we were together in Tom Gray's Legal Studies Colloquium, among other classes. I don't remember all the other classes, but I definitely remember that class because you wrote that really interesting paper. What, what, wasn't it in that class? Or am I, or am I thinking of your law review note now about uh, the moral status of apes? That note took its, had its beginnings in that Tom Gray class. Okay. So I'm not going nuts. Yeah. Not at all. And, and it's interesting because there are lots of these news stories now that are bringing up these issues about the rights of apes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that for one thing, there's this question of whether uh, a primate can have a copyright in a photograph that the primate has taken. We're, we're familiar with it. Uh, okay. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a long running uh, oral argument um, issue that goes back. It, it, did it, go, it went back before the episode that we did on the status of animals, right? That's true. We we had an episode uh, where we talked to a, a person whose name I'm now blanking on, but uh, about the uh, New York, um, well, there was an Oregon case about uh, criminal sanctions for mistreating animals. Uh, how many counts would you be convicted of? Was it one per animal or just one for the group? And then we had a discussion about the New York State habeas corpus proceeding. Yes. Um, and uh, that's that's still ongoing, I think, or, or uh, some some phase of it. Um, mm-hmm. And now, now, Adam, I'm very, I, I like you. Um, and, and so I want to say that I'm glad for you that you're remotely located right now, because I made a personal vow that the next person to bring up the monkey selfie near me would get a punch in the throat. <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> because I'm so fed up with the monkey selfie. Uh-huh. Um, and so I'm glad Adam isn't here, because I would feel honor bound to myself to punch him if you want you can you can give christian the punch because he did sort of lead me on here he did he led you into that trap and and he gets he gets his own dose um i don't need <laughs> you don't need to add to his tab okay um <laughs> i'm sure he doesn't want you doing that um but yeah the monkey selfie um i mean the latest development since we've decided to go into this particular corner of hell. Um, the latest development is that the the uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals has filed a lawsuit asserting that the, the macaque in question uh, should get the copyright proceeds. Um, interestingly, and perhaps not entirely surprisingly, uh, in that same lawsuit, PETA is claiming to be uh, the monkey's agent for purposes of collecting that money. Um, right. So they, they will stand to gain some from that arrangement, I suppose. Well, we just to uh, clarify. So it was Matthew Liebman that we talked to in that ah, in that show. Uh, it was a great show. It was, it was a great a episode. Yeah. And we did talk about the monkey selfie in that show. We also talked about um, habeas corpus and whether um, yeah apes had the right to represent themselves or to be represented or uh, on behalf of themselves. Right? You know, yes. they're, they're I said that their own while interest. you were searching. Um, 
Well, no. Yeah, I did. Mm. I referred to the habeas corpus matter. Oh, boy. I'm going to have to cut all this out. No, you don't. Yeah, I'm going to cut it all out. No, it just shows that you're aging and imperfect like everyone else. Speaking of aging, imperfection, yeah. and the non-existence of the self. Mm. Should, we, <laughs> should we get on with today's topic? <laughs> Let's. Sure. Uh, so, so, so how did you – your, your um, scholarly trajectory has been interesting, and it is actually continuous with that original paper, paper about the status of animals. You've mm. been interested Good point. in – Kind of the status of minds, the, the the a realistic portrait of mind and its interaction with the law kind of throughout your career, haven't you, Adam? Absolutely, with a special focus on subjective experiences like pain and suffering. So how do we value and understand the pain and suffering of, say, a chimpanzee? Um, and how do we understand the pain and suffering of a prisoner? Uh, and do we, do we treat the pain and suffering of pr- prisoners individually or do we treat them as groups? Those are some of the questions that I've been thinking about. And and so, you know, so we're going to talk today. This We've been promising our listeners for a long time a show about determinism and the law ever since we had a conversation with longtime listener and uh, one-time co-host, at least so far, right. uh, Josh Lee, who does death penalty work. Uh, Although now I feel like we should have been calling it mechanism and not determinism. Well, uh, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, by, yeah. Because of the benefit of reading Adam's chapter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I feel like by calling it determinism, we actually were taking on a claim we didn't need to take on. But Well, let me let me set up the, re, you know, yeah, just yeah, to get yeah. back to what kind of Josh's point, right? So Josh is, does defense work. And as he's gotten to know these, um, uh, especially as he's gotten to know prisoners, uh, death row inmates. Yeah, mostly capital habeas stuff. Has as he described it, like increasingly been attracted to um, determinism as a theory for, you know, why people do what they do, right? Why mm-hmm. these prisoners do what they do. And obviously the death penalty is 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 kind of the punishment which most raises this uh, um, uh, retribution and moral responsibility is kind of a key element. And so he's attracted, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying this very well, but... And, and in the mitigation phase uh, as well, the, the, the counter thing of... of being able to explain how the events in your life, especially when you're a child, might affect how you behaved later. Yeah. I mean, in the in the mitigation stage, at the in when people are voting about whether to impose the capital sentence, uh, and Adam talks about this in his paper, yeah. right? That that's a that's a nod to the idea that people are influenced not only by their their uncaused choices, um, if those things exist, right. Um, but also by the influences upon them. So upshot, Adam, if everything is determined by physical laws, nobody's uh, no, nobody's morally morally responsible for anything, right? You're asking if I hold that view? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just getting it started. Actually, you know, it, this turns out to be very complicated. And they're very, there are a bunch of different definitions of, uh, of what free will is, and there are a bunch of True. different ideas about whether it's compatible with determinism and what determinism really means. We'll get into all that. But I just you kind of just headline, the, the big issue is... If you believe that the that the universe operates according to rules and that those uh, or principles and those rules and principles are not within the control of any particular human being, um, then how do we make sense of a concept like moral responsibility? And if we can't, then what do we do with the criminal law? Right. So I, I believe that it's it's difficult to reconcile the fact that we are composed of these particles that follow laws of physics. Um, doesn't matter so much whether those laws are deterministic or indeterministic because it's hard to find the aspect in which we're in control of our own decisions. I think I'm not so bold as to say I have solved these questions about free will. I I certainly have views about them and inclinations and ways that I'm leaning. um, So I'm happy to discuss all of those. And then ultimately in the paper, I try to say, 
well, whatever your views are about these issues, the law may take its own perspective. And I sort of walk through what that could mean. And the perspective that, I mean, so one of the things that you talk about in the paper is that the law we have shows, has, is composed of and composed by uh, the perspective of, uh, how, how do you call it? Like a um, basically a soul-based free will, right? That that people's uh, decisions are, are free at any moment. And so much of the language of the law and the intentions of its makers seems wrapped up in that perspective, right? I think that's right. So one way to start is to is to fo- is to think about these big philosophical questions. Do we have free will? Do we have moral responsibility? And you could say, well, once we solve those questions, the law should simply follow our best views about the philosophical issues. The problem with that is we've been struggling for hundreds of years to try to resolve those questions and we haven't really succeeded. And that leads to the question Aside from the philosophical and moral and policy questions, does the law send any message? Is there anything that we can try to figure out? There are very few cases that really say much about this. It's very hard to find any statute that speaks to it in any direct way. And so I, I cite a few things here and there, but I think primarily the question is, is can, we, can we say something about the intentions or the beliefs of the people who've crafted the criminal law over centuries? And I don't think we can say we don't know a whole lot. But what we do know is that the people who crafted the law probably believed that we had some sort of a soul that was independent of our bodies that somehow could make decisions despite the fact that our physical selves might have been stuck in this deterministic universe. In other words, they may have really believed that the kind of world that modern scientists think we live in uh, is not compatible with moral responsibility. And so we kind of have these breadcrumbs to try to trace it. I mean, partly we'd we'd want to look at a kind of detailed intellectual and legal history. We'd want to look at the religious views of people who've been crafting the law. And even the people who are crafting the law today, I think many of them hold some kind of view that we have souls that are independent of the physical world in some way, that can sort of make decisions that spew from the soul itself. And it's hard to make sense of that from the perspective of modern physics and neuroscience. What what I find, um, I, I, there may be people who think that, but <laughs> it seems to me it's it's more likely that people think that we human beings we experience ourselves as, and therefore think others are, um, bo- both um, pushed around by the world and pushing around the world, mm-hmm. right? So we're both causing things, and we ourselves suffer things that are that are caused not by us, but by our surroundings and and other events, right? So, it, it I don't th- does anyone think we are that our souls can do things that are completely uncontrolled by the way? No one thinks they can will themselves up into the air, right? True. So, so the the being embodied is part and parcel of the experience. Whether you think the soul can live out beyond the body or any something like that, uh, put put that to the side at the moment when you're alive and you're experiencing being alive, you know that you can't just like float because you want to. Sounds like we need to make some initial distinctions here between various kinds of freedom, Mm -hmm. freedom of action, freedom of will, the freedom of, you know, am I wrong about that, Adam? I mean, because yeah, some of of the things Joe's talking about are, are, uh, 
the fact that just because you want something, you you can't do it, right? Put, being pushed around and being able to push around and pause right. both, right? But but this is but this goes to moral responsibility. For example, it would be strange to say people are morally blameworthy because they fail to float up into the air out of the way of an oncoming object. True. Right? So, so what, one place to start is, you know, kind of imagine how you viewed the world as you were growing up. And I suspect that the crafters of the law had sort of similar views. Which is, you know, when you're a kid, you feel like if I want to choose basketball over soccer, I feel like that's my choice. It came from within inside me. Uh, before you sort of learn about physics and chemistry and all that sort of thing, you think that, no, there was nothing about the world that led me to make one of those choices. Uh, it's true that some days it's hotter than other days, or maybe the grass is better on the soccer field than you want to play there, something like that. But you feel like the choice comes from inside you. and. Once you start to understand the way the universe functions and physics, that view becomes more complicated. You have to kind of tell a more complicated story to say that the decisions you make come from inside you, because there's, there's good reason to think, especially if you imagine the world to be deterministic, it seems like, in principle, we could have known whether you would have chosen soccer or basketball before you even confronted the question. We could have, in fact, known if the universe is deterministic before you were born. And that seems inconsistent with our kind of lay view of the universe. I think that that lay view of the universe is quite possibly the one that has dominated through history and maybe even still today. And, and we can get into whether that lay view is the right model even to make the law now. There may be reasons that that lay view is the right perspective to make new law, even if it is uh, um, metaphysically and physically incorrect. But... Uh, let, let, why don't we bracket that for a second and, and get into a little bit more detail about the – well, so there are some experiments, right, involving the way that we make choices. Um, uh, and I forget – who is it who did the experiment with the uh, the rotating dial, Adam? Do you know the one I'm talking about? Where, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin Libet. Yeah. And, and – well, do you want you, – you describe it. You're more familiar with it than I am. Sure. I mean it's easier to see it visually, but the idea is – um, the subjects would be looking at a clock that would move rather quickly, like a kind of like a, well, I guess it's like a second hand, but it would, it would move very quickly. And um, we would connect people up to EEG. So they would have these kind of electrodes on their scalp. And the, what we'd ask people to do is to press a button whenever they felt like it, when they were ready to press it. And so sometimes this would happen. You'd sort of imagine I'm waiting, waiting. Okay, I feel like pressing it. I'm going to press it. So you press the button. And you ask people to look at where that swinging hand is at the time that they felt the urge to press the button. And what the researchers found was that there was EEG evidence, electroencephalography evidence, that they sort of, in some sense, had developed the intention to press the button before they reported having the intention by the time that they saw from this moving clock hand. In other words, there's some brain activity that precedes your own decision to press the button. And, and the evidence is kind of strange as far as I understand, in, in that you, you can observe, uh, um, and they've done this further with, I forget what the new, with, I think they're MRI studies where they can even get, uh, um, infer, make predictions further in advance than half a second or whatever True. it is. That, uh, and what these studies allow you to do is to make statistical predictions, right? To make predictions about what people are likely to do and that you can, you can predict uh, with a with an accuracy uh, better than chance, but it's not a hundred percent, right? 
Um, well, sure. I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate about what, if anything, we learn from the Libet experiment. I mean, it certainly gives a lot of people the, the reaction that's sort of like, oh, gee, you mean my brain is doing something before I'm even consciously aware of it? And I think it's that sense, that, that reaction that leads people to, to think that maybe this is challenging free will in some respect. On the other hand, it's hard to imagine it being any other way. It's hard to imagine that you could sort of just develop the intention to press a button without any brain activity related to that preceding it. Um, and cer- you know, certainly once you understand the physical world, you can't really imagine developing this intention prior to some brain activity that leads up to it. So it's not clear what to learn from Libet, but it certainly does create a reaction in lots of people that leads them to think, hmm, can we make sense of this free will notion? Yeah, and so so one perspective is that what we're observing in these experiments is the formation of an intention, right? And, and that's right. For a physicalist, it's not surprising mm-hmm. that the formation of an intention would be reflected in physical changes in the brain. Yes. I- including changes that we don't directly link to our conscious experience of making the choice. Right. If yes. we could dis- if we could isolate there are some parts of the brain in activity in which indicates oh, that's a person subconsciously being aware of choice-making, right? Mm-hmm. It, those things over there fire. These other things over here fired first. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So it seems like there was something going on prior to yes. the part that feels like choosing. Subjectively, right. Exactly. Right? Um, yeah, well, who, I mean, <laughs> in part, one thing, I, I guess I, my, my response to that is, yeah, okay. I mean, I, I am my brain after all, so it, well, well, we'll be doing different things. As I, let, let, yeah, let, let me let me suggest uh, a, a way that this kind of observation could possibly be uh, evidence of something which people would consider incompatible with free will. And and maybe Adam, you can tell me why I'm wrong or or or, or fix this. But I think there are other kinds of experiments too where you can observe. I don't know if there are they uh, changes in. Um, uh, hormones or something like that, but they're, they're physiological changes in the body. And then the thought seems to, um, come after the physiological changes in the body. One, one way of looking at this is that things happen to you and the brain is this, or or one of the things the brain does is it forms thoughts that reflect those changes, right? Rather than the other way around. Right. And so the Mm -hmm. brain is basically creating stories about things that are happening to you. But that's, it is not directing things like that. That's, you know, now that may be wrong, though, but that's the that is the pe- from the free will perspective, the pessimistic view of what those experiments might be showing. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you have in mind, but there's a lot of research to that effect. So, for example, if we think about vision, we see sort of pieces of the world at a time and then our brain kind of connects the story to a large degree. Our conscious experience is one in which let's say the ball moved gradually from one side of the field to the other. But what our brains might be really be doing are sort of catching parts of it and then filling in the story. And I think that happens with a lot of our experiences, not just visual experiences. You can induce a physiological reaction that then gets mentally labeled. So, so you right. can put, you can create a scenario where you look at the evidence and you say, Oh, so it's not that people are scared. And so their heart is racing. It's that their heart is racing. And so they are scared. Right. They they have the physiology and then mm-hmm. they ascribe the emotional state to that physiology. Right. right. Which sounds backwards in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But d- does is it backwards or is it simply the fact that um, 
the, our experiences are richer and more complex biologically than we might have realized, and the role that an, that an autonomic system plays, which can happen faster than our awareness can happen, um, is part and parcel of that richer biological phenomenon. It doesn't have to call into question anything if, unless you had sort of already presupposed that, um, that nothing was, was biological anyway, or very little that was important was biological. Maybe this is getting to the soul idea, right? That- well, right. So I think maybe it would help listeners just to kind of lay out what are the two big responses to this problem that we're confronting. And one response is to say, hey, wait a second. I thought that I could make these choices by myself. Now I see that, in fact, the universe is causing it to happen by way of my genes and other environmental influences. And now I don't really feel like people make choices anymore. Therefore, you might be a kind of free will skeptic, and you're skeptical about responsibility, uh, moral responsibility in particular. But another response, and, and Joe's certainly hinting in this direction, is to say, hey, wait a second, all this neuroscience is interesting. It's sort of shifting my views a little bit about what kind of person I am but it doesn't cause me any grave difficulties. I just say, sure, the the part of my brain that starts to develop the intention before I'm aware of it, well, that's me. That's my brain, and I'm okay with that. And that that would be more of a compatibilist understanding of of the problem of free will. And I think both of these are, are plausible solutions to the problem. We can talk about sort of which is better and that sort of thing, but um, but maybe that helps listeners to kind of see, look, there are two different ways you can go here. One isn't so radical and one is quite radical. And yeah, talk about problems. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's, why don't we start with uh, uh, moral, moral responsibility? Did I even say mm-hmm. that? I'm, I'm trying to say like rural juror. You remember that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So if we didn't have this concern about moral responsibility, it seems to me that at least from the perspective of the law, we wouldn't worry so much about whether things were determined. We wouldn't worry about the degree of, uh, of action of, and, and will available to a person. So what is, um, and in fact, I've seen some definitions of free will as, uh, as basically meaning uh, that the person can act in such a way that he or she is morally responsible for his or action. So it's almost like a circular definition where the two are wedded together. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you think of it, Adam? Well, sure. So just to connect with that, there are two big theories about how we might justify punishment, how we might justify, let's say, making someone suffer as a result of some bad thing they've done in the past. One is the retributivist view that says you should suffer because you've done something wrong. And that's how we appropriately respond to wrongdoing. You've chosen to do something wrong. If you're a retributivist, then it seems like you're pretty deeply committed to, the, to belief in free will. You have to have some kind of compatibilist or other story that says, yes, we can hold people responsible even in the kind of modern world that we live in, uh, modern understanding of the world. But there's another view, which is we punish people not because they've done something wrong and deserve to be punished, but rather because we want to deter crime, we want to incapacitate dangerous people, and maybe even rehabilitate them. If you take the consequentialist view, you might, be, you might believe in free will. Um, on the other hand, it's a little bit less essential to your theory because whether or not people can make choices freely, we understand that punishing them can still deter crime and incapacitate and rehabilitate. So the consequentialist in some respects is, is less tied into this argument, less worried about it perhaps. I, I want to go back to the first, the, the, the free will assumption because it, it sounds like it's being made unnecessarily pure. Does it, doesn't someone only need to assume that they're that they're one of the causes? Like if I want, if I, the retributivist idea, it, it doesn't insist that 
the True. person I'm punishing is the only source of the act, merely that they be a source of the act, right? True. So suppose someone um, kills his spouse in the heat of passion because he sees his spouse in an adulterous relationship. We, we all acknowledge that the situation had a huge effect on the person's behavior, no question. Um, but the question is whether that the, the defendant had any relevant choice in the matter. So you're right, it doesn't have to be everything. And, and indeed, the degree of criminal responsibility, um, the, the traditional approach, which would say that that heat of passion leads to a lesser degree of criminal responsibility, but not no criminal responsibility, includes both ideas, both that you were, not, you were a cause, but not the whole cause. That's right. But, but the, the difficulty here is, is even suggesting that someone is a cause. What does it mean to suggest that. that a person is a cause? Yeah. Or a partial cause is that I don't think that's very different than saying that they're the whole cause in terms of this problem, right? I mean, that, that the, be, the whole but, problem is figuring out what it means to be a cause of something, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, did, are you? Did you want to say something about that, Joe? <laughs> no, I just don't think. I I, I think it is unnecessary. One is making one's life harder if, if you're trying to prop up the notion that the human being is the only cause. Um, I don't. I don't, I don't think that, think that yeah. the laws acted that way. In fact, almost ever. Yeah, but that's not, I don't see that that's really the problem. I mean, it's someone who commits a crime, right? Their yeah. parents are a cause of that crime because, but for the conjugal relations of the, the, yeah. the parents, the, the crime wouldn't have happened, Fair right? Fair point. Um, it, <laughs> so, so the law means something slightly different by cause and necessarily includes some element of either moral philosophy or policy to kind of fill in what we mean by a, a, a direct cause. Um, but the, but the whole problem here is what it means for a person to be a morally responsible for causing something. And that I don't think it gets any easier because you think that the law doesn't insist that they're the whole cause. I think that problem is just as hard. What I don't want us to miss is the point that all along the law has been acting like people are some of the explanation for the things they do, but not all of the explanation for the things they do. That that pragmatic approach that says you're part of the picture, but not the entirety of the picture, I think that's a through line that connects all this stuff as in terms of the legal system's response, the legal system's management of, of human affairs has, has always been the pragmatic middle ground between people are no different from falling rocks there, a rock falls because it's driven by physical laws, and people are the unmoved mover from Aristotle, and in that <laughs> sense are God, right? The law hasn't ever taken either of those views, and that's important, I think, um, as a backdrop for the discussion about what, what piece of this we want to problematize and, and try to dig further into. But the law is shot through with, um, and, and Adam, you point to some of these in, in, in your article, um, in the way that it creates uh, excuses and um, uh, what's what's the other word I'm thinking from criminal law? Justifications, Justifications right? That that seem to sound in moral responsibility, right? You identify situations where, oftentimes, where you, you either justify or excuse, or situations in which we think that a person really could not, could not have done otherwise. It does seem to take the strong Aristotelian view of humanity. Um, when it comes to creating, when it comes to defining what crimes are. And I think this goes beyond crime, I mean, to, to be clear, but, but sticking with, with And then Adam's you piece. relax it when you provide those justifications or, or excuses or whatever. Yeah, are we off track here, Adam? 
Yeah, get us back on track, dude. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. I, I certainly agree that the law has never assumed that we are the sole thing responsible for our actions. I agree with both of you about that point. Um, and I do agree that the central question is, you know, how can you be responsible for anything? Um, if we could solve that problem, we would have gone a long way toward resolving the, the big questions. Um, but I do think we still have to face the question of, aside from what philosophers might say, can we extract anything from our views about what might have been the intentions of the law's crafters? And I sort of imagine, you know, imagine a time machine and you go back, you know, to 1800 and you're having a conversation with a legislator or a, or a judge who's deciding some common law issue. And you start asking them questions like, well, what if I told you that the reason the defendant took the action that he did was, well, here's this part of the brain and here are the synapses and here's the history. And you kind of walk him back to a, the history of the universe for 100 years and you say, do you think he's responsible I think there's a good case to be made that that judge would say no. I don't know it definitively, but when you have a hard question, judges do different kinds of things. I mean, one approach you could just say is, look, it's too hard of a question. We don't know what lawmakers were thinking. They probably didn't speak univocally. They had different religions in different times and they're from different countries. But another thing they might do is say, yeah, this is a hard problem, but we're trying to pick up some breadcrumbs of what we think they thought. And this hypothetical about going back in the time machine, I don't think it's useless. I think it might suggest that the, the view that underlies the criminal law is outdated. But what if you told that same legislator, OK, I've taken you through this exercise and I've convinced you that the kind of responsibility you thought that this person had, they in fact mm -hmm. did not have. Um, but now that I've changed your mind about that, uh, if you act otherwise, the following things are going to happen. Right. In other words, uh, um, uh, there are a bunch of other people whose, you know, you, you trace their histories back and um, had it not been for the influence of the law which attributed responsibility, they would have committed crimes. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's I think part of part of the difficulty here is um, is this inherent kind of separation from thinking about law from the rest of the universe. Where, where even the thinking mm -hmm. about law is part of the universe. And this kind of goes, you know, this gets into this jurisprudential theory that I keep saying we're going to talk about one day, right? But I think one of the core problems here is uh, you know, when I look at some of these definitions of free will. I look at some of the definitions of determinism and each has concepts in it which can be poked and pulled apart even more. And and so, so look, here here's some examples. So so uh um you know there's this famous case of this guy who became a pedophile, right? Um and there was no explanation for it. Turns out he had some uh, um uh, I don't know if it was a tumor, but some growth in mm -hmm. a certain part of the brain, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it gets excised, and the um uh, at least apparently the impulses toward pedophilia go away. He notices they start to come back. They go back in, and sure enough, there's a regrowth of this thing, right? Mm -hmm. And uh. So in that sense, you know, is he really responsible for these feelings that he has or these actions that he took? I mean, it appears to be a growth on the part of his brain. And we have this sense that 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 growth is not a part of him, that he is different mm -hmm. from this growth that happens. Right. You yeah, given how readily excisable it is. Other exp other experiments, you know, when you cut the corpus callosum, the thing that connects the two halves of the brain, yep. you can induce people to think of themselves as like two different people. They're very strange experiments that I only vaguely recall from from psychology as an as an undergrad. Right. There are other places you can manipulate parts of people's brains and they can see themselves from outside of themselves. 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, they feel like they're floating and they're looking down into the operating room. You can do all of these things. You can uh, give people various psychedelic drugs and they feel a sense of oneness okay. with the universe. All right. And so, and so what? Like what follows from the fact that we know these things about ourselves? We know the way in which our embodiment in this particular form has these consequences for us as beings, as living beings. So what follows in terms of criminal responsibility from that fact? I think it's a mistake and to see uh, criminal law or any area of law or any moral code as standing apart from the physical universe, right? As being a thing which is responsive to the universe. I think it follows from the same mistake that we make of thinking of, of ourselves as existing within the universe as an entity rather than being the universe, right? We are undifferentiated parts of the universe, which we see as distinct, right? Because of the models that we have in our head of how things work. And these models are very useful models and they exist at all kinds of scales, right? And so one way to see what the criminal law is actually doing, right? Is that it is the product of human beings, Mm -hmm. which is intended ultimately to reduce suffering, right? And even moral codes from which we think some uh, at least retributivist notions of the criminal law come, even those codes are products of human beings which have proved useful and and seem right, right? But they are ultimately models of uh, models upon models, right? We, we, we model these, you know, I'm looking across the room right now and I'm seeing a bunch of atoms, right? I'm seeing a bunch of atoms and molecules and, and even those things are just basically models of reality, right? That I have come to learn over time. But what I see is Joe sitting there. What does it mean to see Joe as apart right. from the chair and as apart from the rest of the universe, right? It's a concept in my head. It is a model of the, of the universe. But what is the ultimate, you know, what does it mean to say Joe's mind, Joe's intention, Joe's will, right? Those are useful concepts. Yes. Uh, but they, but do they have any kind of core reality uh, that is You, you say that as if you haven't already described the core reality. But what I'm saying is that the reality of your will exists in my head and it exists and my head is itself like an understanding I have of myself, right? It is the universe. <laughs> it is just the universe, <laughs> right? right? Um, it exists in my head too, by the way. Yeah. Adam, does this make sense? Does this? <laughs> well, uh, I want to connect with a few of the things you said. I mean, the most recent part is just raising some really deep questions of what is the nature of the external world? What sort of knowledge can we have about our own minds, about other minds? So lots of deep questions in there. But let me connect to two of the things that you mentioned also. So one is the story about the school teacher who develops the tumor. So what can we say about that? If you're a free will skeptic, you might say something like this. You see, when you tell people this story, they feel hesitant to punish the teacher. And what does that show? It shows that when people understand the causal explanations for people's behavior, they're, they're less likely to be retributive towards them, less likely to be punitive towards them. And so that's how the free will skeptic might say, and therefore, if we understood the physical causes of all of our behavior, we'd be we wouldn't be punitive at all. That's how the way the free will skeptic might look at it. Right. The, the compatibilist would say something else. They would say something like, well, tell me the details of the tumor. Is it affecting the criteria that I think are important for moral responsibility, like whether the person has their rational faculties or something like that? If the tumor is not affecting their rational faculties, the compatibilist holds the line and says, yup, it's okay to hold them responsible. And maybe that fights our intuitions a little bit. Um, But that's the sort of debate that the compatibilist might have with the free will skeptic. And the other point I wanted to connect you connect up with was 
we imagine this time machine where we go back and speak to lawmakers a couple hundred years ago. And you brought up, I think, a good point, which is to say, well, suppose they really do have a kind of um, what I call soul-based libertarian intentions, these sort of views that don't work anymore. The next thing you could ask is, well, what would they say had we dissuaded them from their views? And I think that's a hard question to know what they would take. It's possible they would come toward a kind of compatibilist view. But there's a legal question here, which is, how do we construe the intentions of lawmakers when we care about them at all? And some people think we shouldn't care that much about them. But do we, do we ask not only what did they intend, but what would they have intended under counterfactual circumstances? And I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure if we had some environmental laws and it turns out that there was some, some bad science in there. Do we ask just what the legislators intended or do we say, had we revealed what the proper science is, what would those legislatures have said under other circumstances? And I just think these are kind of tough questions and you can make plausible cases in different directions. Yeah, well, why do you, why do we care so much about uh, intention? I mean, and this is, um, I mean, I think it's an interesting way to think about the law, but in intentionalism as, as a way of interpreting what the law is, mm-hmm. um, seems to me to fall out of favor. I mean, um, among the, uh, you know, conservatives, typically tend to be textualist or originalist more than intentionalist uh, these days. And, um, and people you might describe as more liberals, uh, more liberal tend to be more purposivist or uh, dialogic, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so, so the purposivism the, is a flavor of intentionalism, though. It's just a matter of the level be. of generality, <laughs> well, which it, something it is stated, ha- right? It doesn't have to be. I mean, it, it doesn't it have can, to be, but it, it can, can be. be. Intention can be, likely intentions can be a source of data, Interp- and interpreting, but laws but, could have objective purposes. You know, anyway, you could for, go ahead. Yeah. So for the recent King against Burwell, right, where the, where the chief justice says, you know, what, wh- the way we're going to interpret the statute is we're going to recognize Congress has a plan. Yeah. Right. So if that's what you mean by purposivism, that can, you can, you can also tell that as a story about intentions, Congress's intentions in passing the statute. It's to implement a plan. Um, so, so I don't think there's a, there 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 doesn't necessarily have to be a sharp division between um, intentionalism and purposivism. Well, what is, is it, so, Adam? What's the philosophical point here in terms of pointing to intention? Is it to know more about the criminal law, or is it because you think intention is the right way to think about what the law we have is? Yeah. So I think there's two different ways that scholars might discuss the issue of intentions. One is to talk to make a kind of normative claim: how ought intentions to matter in the law? And I think that's where some of the debate is that you've been focusing on. What, how should it matter? And I want to take a different per- perspective in the paper. My issue is not how intentions ought to matter, but simply stating the, the fact that intentions often do matter in the law. I'm not defending whether they should or shouldn't, right. but I'm imagining you know, if I were teaching my students about how to interpret some statute, quite often the intentions do matter. And they tend to matter when we don't have a lot of strong legal evidence or legal sources of authority to point us at a solution more directly. So I don't want to claim, I don't want to, I mean, we could talk about it, but I'm not prepared to argue one way or the other about how they ought to matter, but rather just acknowledging that they do matter. Well, the way that I read your argument, and perhaps I misread it, uh, is that um, it, understanding intention is important for understand, for, it could be important for thinking about whether the law we have is any good. Um, that one way that the law could possibly be bad or maybe should be revised is that it was created by people who had intentions that were just um, misperceived the universe or misperceived reality. Right. And, and I, I saw part of your effort is, as suggesting that 
it's hard to square the intentions of the the authors over time of the criminal law uh, with anything other than um or, or I don't say anything other I don't want to be too strong but but with yeah. something other than uh libertarian free will. Yeah, it's it's not so differently than the way I would put it, but I would just say that lots of law professors and philosophers are debating the underlying substantive question about whether we have free will or not. But that's a debate that's something it's something of a standstill. And so suppose a court has to decide this issue. And one way to do it is imagine that you either didn't know about the philosophical debate or you didn't understand it. And we had to focus on just the legal component here, the legal sources of authority. And on that score, I think one plausible source of legal authority is what we take to be the intentions underlying the criminal law. So if a statute refers to doing something willfully, we might ask the question, what did what did they mean when they said willfully? Did they mean that you could do something willfully when you're a brain composed of particles? Or did they mean you do something willfully when your soul makes this independent choice to act? What's challenging for me is knowing, is, is thinking about situations in which it would actually make a difference, the answer mm-hmm. to that question. Um, yeah. Be, because I'm, I, I'm, my guess would be uh, legislators say willfully, um, uh, on the assumption that, again, to use my very crude formulation from before, we're neither rocks nor God, right? We're we're somewhere in between, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so we treat each other as if we're somewhere in between because that leads to all kinds of good outcomes. Like mm-hmm. you can't deter everybody, but you can deter a lot of people. Uh, you get people to communicate more information to you about their intentions by making it clear to them that you know, some things they do are not appropriate. And so they need to avoid those things. Um, so you just wind up making life better, right? Uh, and you don't need to get to ground on precisely what it was their theory of mind was in 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 creating a particular legislative uh, measure. But maybe that's wrong. Maybe there are times when it's really important to know what their theory of mind was, or their theory of physics. Um, or human action. Right. I mean, one possibility is we could just ignore all of these issues and maybe life would go on okay. But if that were the case, we would say like the law would never really be responsive to deep underlying changes in our views about the universe. So let me give you a slightly different example. It's what some some people refer to as mental states being epiphenomenal or intentions being epiphenomenal. Suppose that neuroscientists come out and they say, you know what, you think that you have the intention to go and uh, pick up this coffee, but in fact, something happened in your brain first, and subsequently you believe that you had the intention and you believe that you developed the intention, but in some way it, it wasn't really spewing from you. And there's a way of telling this story that upsets not just free will skeptics, but also upsets compatibilists, because <laughs> you tell a story in which our mental states, our intentions are bypassing our rational faculties. Now, suppose we had that information, what would happen to the courts? Well, you could say they would just ignore this information, but you might say, no, you'd want to present this information because it would radically change on both sides of the philosophical debate how we understand human nature. If the legal system could be open to such information, then it should also be open to claims about the physical nature of the universe and mechanism and all those sorts of things. Is it responsive to those things? In fact, not very. Why not? Well, I think one reason it might not be is that there are these fundamental assumptions in the law, like soul-based libertarianism, and there's just no great mechanisms for challenging these deep kinds of features of the justice system. It's not that it's impossible. For example, I don't know anybody that's ever said, 
look, this defendant's behavior was, was caused by all these physical forces all the way up to the beginning of time. Therefore, you should let him go. I don't know anyone making that argument, accepting it. I don't know anyone denying that argument because challenges to the fundamental assumptions of criminal law just don't seem to come up very often. Yeah, how about this, though? How, how about um, thinking that, you know, the, the one thing that we all know is that we can suffer, right? And then we mm-hmm. can feel suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we also come prepared to form impressions of our reality, which are based in what, again, what I'm calling models, right? So I have a model of Joe. I also have, I have more general and more specific models of Joe, right? If I, you know, Joe has a nose, he's got a mouth, uh, uh, which he uses to deride me normally. Uh, (laughs) He's wearing, you know, his eyes, his glasses, like, you, you know, I can think about Joe more specifically or more generally. I can think about Joe as an agent with intentions. I can think about Joe as uh, his behavior is caused by things that have happened in the past. I, my, my sense of Joe, the model that I have of Joe, exists at many different scales. And the, and the scale that I access when I think about Joe depends on the question that I'm asking about Joe. Mm. And, and so the, the way that we come together to solve the problem, what, what, what Shapiro calls the conditions of legality, right? This, this almost tragic situation that we're in, that if we don't cooperate in a particular way, that we all suffer, right? And, and so uh, the law is almost an emergent property of these problems that we have together. And, we, and so we're trying to cooperate. And the way that we do that is that we, we author a law in a way that references, that references these shared models that we have right of a person like even if we even for all scientists and we understand that even the concept of a person is a fluid thing we're all composed of like all kinds of alien dna you know mm-hmm. and and that our minds you know if we manipulate them in certain ways we could almost make two people out of one we we could give you a sense that you're two different people if we manipulate it in the right way or mm-hmm. zero people we can make you an automaton i mean all of these we could do all of these things right but um, but in our normal everyday interactions, we have an intuition that we're dealing with a person, even though if we reflect on that fact, we can understand that what it means to interact with a person um, is, is, is something that exists at many, many different levels and scales. And it kind of depends on what the purposes of our interactions are. So we know all this, but we need to manage the con- these conditions, we've, these conditions of cooperation and conflict that we find ourselves in. And so mm-hmm. the law, just like our brains works by identifying models of reality. It identifies people. It, it, it identifies causation, responsibility, jail, punishment, right? It, it references these concepts that we understand in reality are just models of this very fluid, weird reality in which we find ourselves. And that we accept these, we, we, you know, the, we make the law which references those models in a way that we mutually can accept at least well enough, right? And so the law works by modeling um, actions of human beings as being uh, when we can't find, you know, when we don't have a model of an extraneous force, right, as being somehow tied to that individual, that individual, again, just being a model, right? And so the, the brain of the, of the pedophile, right? I mean, we have a, before any knowledge about, I don't know, uh, tumors which affected these things, like, you know, this person is a pedo. Who knows why they're acting? They're probably, you know, the devil is in them or something like that. I mean, they're evil, right? Mm-hmm. The evil goes away. It comes, it comes again, right? This, you know, I have to have a concept of whether this is an evil person or not. As we have more scientific knowledge, we might have a model of a human being which identifies them with something that we think of as their normal brain activity. And we could see then a tumor as 
an exogenous force. That choice to see it as as an exogenous force is, again, a model of an individual human that associates them with kind of the normal growth of their brain and does not associate them with things which are you know, like the tumor, which we think of as exogenous to, to the brain. And why do we choose that more specific model of human action? Well, because we have the scientific ability to make that separation and because uh, we now can intervene, you know, maybe medically or at least monitor medically or do something which reduces the danger that that individual will cause other people suffering. Right. And, and so this is almost what I'm, you know, I'm not going to get it all out here right now, but I'm trying to make the case that even if we are not what Posner has called in soul demi angels, right? Even if we are basically control, we are just the universe. Um, the law usefully describes us otherwise, and maybe it can't help but describe us otherwise. And in doing so, and in, in, in describing people as in soul demi angels or describing people as having free will, right? The law is is telling is is telling a useful story that allows us to reach conclusions and live together, and so that maybe even a retributive based law can serve a purpose, right? Because if the law were otherwise, we now I'm not a retributivist to be clear. Like I, I think uh, basically incapacitation and uh, and deterrence, although deterrence I think is you know for a lot of crimes is not really effective, but. Uh, but but whatever, I, you, you could be a retributivist. There could be an argument, right, for retributivism uh, independent of a concept of free will if you take this modeling view of things, I think. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. But yeah, yeah. So let me respond to first your big sort of jurisprudential view and then the more narrow issue related to a useful story and retributivism and that sort of thing. So on the first part, I'll tell you what I thought of. And it's sort of the first time I'm, I'm thinking about the story is – you're painting a picture where people might have slightly different concepts of something like a person and then kind of how do we deal with that and what does it all mean? So one way to envision this is to pick something that we really do have pretty different pictures of and see how the law might handle that. And so what comes to mind would be something like witches or ghosts or something like that. Right. So and there, there is, of course, are histories of making laws about such supernatural phenomena. And you could imagine Legislature, legislators dealing with the question of witches. And some people think that a witch is a totally supernatural thing that has these magical powers. Some people think that a witch is just a human being, but is exotic or eccentric in certain kinds of ways. And what happens then is I'm not sure that we have to come up with some universally agreed upon model, but rather we just are stuck together with a law that's based on a patchwork of different views and different intentions and different models. Um, by the way, I think that that's possible in the, in the context of free will as well when we talk about the law, but we might try to extract what is a dominant view or a dominant set of intentions. Um, so, so I'm not sure that we have to kind of work our models together as opposed to just having patchwork, patchworks of models. And then on the second point about, you know, maybe we're, we're really not in soul demi-angels, but we're going to pretend that we are because it tells a useful story. And we might still end up with a kind of retributivist world. Sure, I have no problem with that. I mean, I tend to view criminal law matters from a kind of consequentialist perspective. And so the consequentialist might say, yeah, the best way to run the criminal justice system is retributive. That may have the best consequences. But as scholars, what we want to do is figure out as close as we can to the truth. And once we know that, then we can figure out what kinds of second best approaches will best accomplish what we're really trying to do, 
Um, so we have to figure out what it is we really care about before we can do approximations to it. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, ex- except to say that um, the, the patchwork only works if there's a higher level model at which we have an agreement. You know, we have to have an agreement about how to let the patchwork work. You know what I mean? So, you know, the and again, this gets us a little bit of field what we're talking about, but with uh, with with constitutional law. Right. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. we can have very different models of what the Constitution does mm-hmm. and, and and models of how to interpret it and models of the institutional flows of information that, that accomplish that. But at some point, we have to have a kind of a shared model about how we operate within that plural world. And, yeah. and so that's why you know, it doesn't have to be shared that we have exactly the same view, but we have to have kind of a coincident acceptance of, 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 this, uh, of this kind of reality. And, but we can have and, – and I think critically we do – have very different, more detailed models, right? So both Joe and I think each other – I think – I think this is true as people, right? At least I think of you as a person. I think you think of me as a jackass sometimes, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> Jackasses are people too. Right. But, but I, <laughs> <laughs> even within myself, I have very contradictory models of, of Joe at some points, I'm sure, right? As do I. Yeah. Of, of yourself. Of course. And, and of me, right? And, and, yeah. But we wouldn't be able to interact if we had totally different models of what we were. No, I think that's right. right. Um, you know, something that's that's been on my mind during this conversation, and I think it's it, and the conversation has really helped me see it, and uh, and so I thought I would share it. We have been, I feel like in our in our history, and I'm reminded of the conversation we had last week with Al Brophy. You know, in our history, we have gone through periods where we we did have to, we decided to, we had to, however you want to describe it, our, our notion of what of who humans are really did get completely overturned, right? So mm-hmm. we, I think white supremacy as a working model of human life it was, at one point in our history, the dominant view in the country. And of course, that, that meant tons of laws reflected that fact. I think it is not, no longer the dominant view of human life in our country. I think um, similarly, although now we view men and women as equally people and meriting equal dignity and all the other things that follow from that, there was a time when I think that was not the case. In both instances, the process of figuring out what in law can survive that change and what can't survive that change takes time, unfolds over time. And I wonder whether the transformations of our knowledge and our view of ourselves that come about because of things like the understanding of uh, genetics, the understanding of neurology, the understanding of all the things we learn in the last few decades about our own biology, whether there too there isn't going to be another transformation where some of law will survive that and some of it won't because it no longer is useful given this new view we have of ourselves. And I think that's a fascinating question. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's how I relate to it. In, in terms of what it means for law that we know these things about ourselves now that we might not have known before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, li- I like the example in the sense that, so I raised the question of what were the intentions of the law's crafters with respect to the nature of responsibility, and I do think it's helpful to consider these other kinds of examples, like a body of law that might have had intentions that were white supremacists in some respect, and then those views change, and we have to figure out one is how to understand the law and then what to do about it. And you know, one thing you might do is say, 
we're going to actually change the law because we have this kind of common law system. A judge might say, yeah, it's true that this body of law is in is infested with these outdated views about morality and human beings. And so I'm just going to change them in the way that judges can change laws over time. And another view is to say, well, really, I think the content of the law still is white supremacist in some respects. And so what we need to do, um, well, I guess I'm saying the same thing twice, is, is, is to ch- you, you, can, you can change the law um, a kind of on the surface or or sort of quietly. And I think that that's what would, ha- what would happen in the white supremacist case. But being honest about it, the honest version is, yeah, the law d- is infested with these white supremacist views, therefore we need to change it. I think that's more honest than simply pretending as though those intentions were never there. And a juror, just to give another example of, of how complex it can be to, for, for law to go through these changes, if you look at statutes that, let's say, predate the Civil War, uh, and they might say that jury duty uh, de- just depends on who the voters are. Right. So juror, you're eligible to be a juror if you're eligible to be a voter. Right. Mm-hmm. But over time, the people who get to vote changes radically. Right. Mm-hmm. Suddenly it's not just white people. It's white people and black people. Suddenly it's not just men. It's also women. And all along. Right. The word juror in the statute hasn't changed and the word voter hasn't changed. But the content of one has changed. Should the content of the other change mm-hmm. right should you say well jurors no we have to keep it white men because when they wrote the word juror that's the only people who could vote mm-hmm. or do we let the notion of juror the concept juror expand as the concept of voter expands mm-hmm. first i think that is what happened right? <laughs> courts just said yeah if you're a voter you're a juror even if you couldn't have voted when they wrote the word juror and created that link earlier yeah, but it's an interesting. Now, so, how would you characterize that kind of change? Is that a slide change? Is that an open change? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I think that the way courts would typically look at it is you focus on the language in the statute first. And in this case, if it says you know voters and jurors, you might think that the language itself is pretty clear on its face. But t- let's suppose that it wasn't so clear, and and that you did have to refer to intentions. Um, then we'd have to we'd have to address it, and you know maybe they intended the meaning of these things to change, but maybe they didn't. I think there's a plausible view that they didn't, and what you might have to say is, yeah, the law isn't is infested with these outdated views, and th- those are grounds for changing it. Maybe to shift just a little bit, is there anything incoherent about? Suppose suppose that we've got a problem. You know, we li- we live near a cliff, and rocks keep falling off the cliff and hitting people or breaking things. And, and we find this undesirable. And so we make a law making it illegal for rocks to fall. Um, and, and a rock that falls, we're going to put in jail. Is, is there anything, I mean, it, it doesn't seem particularly effective. Um, there's nothing particularly incoherent about it, though, is there? This is a great way to bring the conversation full circle, because there is a history in Europe and other places of putting animals on trial. And so there was a time in our in the history of this world where um, the pig, let's say, runs in and hits the child and knocks the child over, where we actually would try the pig for assault. And there would be attorneys on both sides arguing the matter. <laughs> and I think this is very relevant to the question of free will, because there's some evidence that people really thought that the pig was responsible for this in a way for which it might warrant punishment. If that's true. And it's hard to really get that, to to know that for sure. But if that's true, that people really thought this, it suggests that 
people's views about responsibility can change again. And it could be that for a long portion of our history, we thought people did wrong and they deserved punishment and we could make sense of that. But it's possible that in the future, we won't view things that way. We'll say, can you believe this history of treating humans as though they killed someone out of their own will (laughs) and therefore they deserve to be punished for it? And people will laugh at that and say, of course not. The proper solution there is you give the person the proper medication to correct their brain or the proper whatever procedure is. Um, and so, so it's, it suggests that our views about responsibility are not necessarily fixed and could change again. Or, or you segregate them not because they're responsible, but because their behavior is what alerted you to the fact that they're a future danger, right? This yes. is the incapacitation idea. Right. I mean, so, so, you know, one of the ideas of free will, I mean, there are a, a few different um, notions of it, but one of them is that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you have a free will in the sense that you you are the source of your will and actions. You're the source of, of your decisions. And, you know, in a way, it, it, um, you know, the, the rock that falls is the source of its falling, right? It is, you know, the, the gravitational attraction is, is to the rock. So the, the falling arises within the rock, the, uh, the pig that goes on a rampage, right? That, uh, that, that thing arises within the pig. We, we can always attribute further causes, which is, um, the whole problem with, or, or a problem with, uh, compatibilism. But, but if we think about like why we would, you know, if we were in such a society that made, uh, the pig's actions illegal and punish the pig or, or made the rock's action illegal and punish the rock. Why, why would we move away from that uh, toward only punishing people? Is it because the rock and the pig are fundamentally different in the sense of having qualities of the universe that um, uh, are not having qualities of the universe that, that exist in people's brains? I mean, surely they're different. Every, everything is different. But but one particular thing, and I I don't know what you think about this, but I, you know, in looking at this stuff, I saw the theories of Strawson and uh, and who is it? It's G- Gary Watson. Th- this idea that or, or one way of looking at free will is it involves this kind of communicative capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so someone who's to be morally responsible is is not to be like the ultimate cause of something, but to be. In some, and I'm translating here. I'm probably doing it badly, and maybe just translating it to what I think. But to be somehow within the influence of a communicative group or community, right? Mm-hmm. And so to be morally responsible doesn't mean that you're the ultimate cause of the bad thing that happened, but it means that we could influence you by making a moral rule or a law and communicating that moral rule and law. And so there's something very communitarian, right, about our moral responsibility is just a shorthand way of saying that um, if we have a certain law or we have a certain moral rule that maybe, you know, that will, that is a change in the universe that will interact with your brain in a way that may make a change. Well, I'd say one way to think about free will is to say, you know, you observe someone take a certain action and we have what are sometimes called reactive attitudes to that. We blame them. We feel angry at them. We have these emotions. And one way to think about it is, under what circumstances are those reactive attitudes justified and which ones aren't they? And you might think that the part of the purpose of these reactive attitudes, like you said, is part of some broader community sense or some notion of communicating things with each other, pe- with other people. And my response to that is it feels kind of unsatisfying to me. I mean, why are we communicating things unless we really believe those things? And so that's what I would want to know first is, like, well, what, what's really going on? And the truth of the matter is, it's very hard to live or imagine a world where we didn't have those kinds of reactive attitudes, where someone wrongs you and you don't have any emotion to that. That would, that would seem odd. But 
and uh, Josh Green and Jonathan Cohen make this sort of point, which is it's one thing in kind of in our daily lives, we are going to respond to people in certain ways. And that's just sort of the nature of human psychology. But when we're crafting the criminal justice system, we're calling upon experts to think about how we ought to sentence people, how we ought to treat people, and doing so in a way that involves some of the harshest, harshest treatment imaginable. I mean, confining people against their will for extremely long periods of time, the death penalty is very serious. And when we're doing that, we don't have to rely on these sort of evolved reactive attitudes. We can use our higher brain power to think about other possible solutions. And so I don't think we need to feel stuck with the traditional way of doing it just because it comes so naturally to us, but we can envision other ways of doing things in the future. And, and, and Green and Cohen would suggest that as we better understand neuroscience, as we can see more detailed examples of, of quite how it works, how, how our brains influence, uh, I'm not going to say influence our conduct because that's sort of everything, <laughs> how the physical world influences our decisions, that we're more likely to be responsive to the more free will skeptical approach. I, I don't know if it's unsatisfying. I mean, uh, you know, you know, it's it's not unsatisfying to me, despite the fact that I that I believe that Joe does not have free will in the sense of being an ensouled demi angel, right? I don't. I, right. I think of Joe as you know. I know there's a part of me that knows that Joe is an undifferentiated part of the universe, uh, and and uh, but it doesn't feel unsatisfying to act as though he has free will. Right. But that that's that's the real trick. Like, I think intellectually to know that fact is one thing emotionally to be comfortable with it. Like, that's the work of a lifetime in a way. Right. Is to, is to emotionally be good with and feel what what I think intellectually we we grasp. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, well, one way to is imagine this dialogue that you're about to put someone in prison for the rest of his life for committing some crime. And I say to you, well, could he have done otherwise? And your response to that is, well, yeah, if he had a different brain, he could have done otherwise, right? If, if his rational faculties came to work in a different way. And I said, no, 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 no. I, I realize if he were differently construed, he would act differently. But I want to know, could this guy have acted differently? And we, you know, we sort of go through those motions a little bit. And at some point you might say, no, he couldn't have physically done differently because that's the nature of the universe that we have. And I think a lot of people are going to say, oh, wait a second, we're putting him, we're taking away his liberty in these harsh circumstances for such a long time, even though he couldn't have done differently, it weakens that retributive sentiment, I think. It's difficult to, to know, although I feel like part of the challenge I keep having in, this, in the application of these ideas to criminal responsibility is the fact that one thing that stands out, and maybe this is what makes dealing with the criminal law uh, difficult, Part of what stands out is most people in most of these same situations don't wind up committing the crime. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be, if you just think about folk, the folk psychology of attribution and causation, right? Mm -hmm. And you see most of the people who are in that context actually don't crime. Mm -hmm. Well, so, so the fact that this person did crime is seeming to tell us something about them individually True. and not, and not just about the world or about um, the nature of physics or something. Uh, yes. And so in the, in the face of that fact, even when I know a lot more about them as individuals and the circumstances that brought them to that place, it, it still doesn't 
make them one of the people who didn't do it. Right. Right. They're, they're the person who did do it. Uh, and, and it seems like we're trying to address that issue with criminal uh, uh, sanctions, right? You're the one who did it. Most people didn't do it. Does that make sense? Well, sure. But you, you started your comment out by saying, Here, here's a pl- plausible story about folk ascriptions of responsibility. And so, of course, the question, though, is going to be is what to do with those folk ascriptions of responsibility. I mean, I think that our, our, it's quite possible that our folk ascriptions of responsibility are that we have these souls. Do we just stick with our folk attributions of responsibility that evolved over centuries forever? Or do we ever question them and say, you know, maybe something's broken down here in, in our own machinery of how we think about responsibility? Well, I think we absolutely should be questioning them if, if for no other reason than, again, as we learn more about um, the, the human condition, and some of that we learn from biology, some of that we learn from history, as we learn more about it, I think, of, of course, we should be trying to figure out, does it call into question some of the basic ways that we're, that we're operating? Um, mm-hmm. I just don't know that... Um, I feel pretty confident, though, that that by calling it into question, I don't know where it's going to land because yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure of all of the things that caused it to be in the condition it's in right now to begin with. So I don't know how yeah. it's all going to shake out. But if, yeah. I'm all, believe me, I'm all for I'm all for calling these things into question for I sure. Think it, it lands in incapacitation and deterrence. Okay, thank you for clearing that up. I think quite possibly <laughs> <laughs> show over, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, problem solved yeah you know setting aside the the argument that i hinted at earlier that there can be consequentialist reasons for a retributivist system mm-hmm. uh that adam you know that you responded to adam yeah. but um i, I don't certainly know. agree with that yeah i don't know where else we're going to go though it feels like I don't know. I don't even know why I bother to have this conversation because it was preordained. Mm. That's true. Which means we, couldn't, we, couldn't, we couldn't have not talked about what we talked about. Quite possibly. If it, were, if it was, if it was preordained, why does it feel so unfinished? It does, doesn't it? I guess that was also preordained. <laughs> I, I have to. So we're going to very irritating. Obviously, Adam's uh, article is going to be in the show notes. Of course, that, it might be the only thing in the show notes this week because I think it's okay. enough to think about. And it's, right. it's. I just want to make a pitch for it because it is. Um, it, you'll you'll learn both, you know. You'll learn about law, and you'll learn about philosophy, and think about these issues that I think a lot of people think about, regardless of their yeah. training, regardless of you know their their specialty. And it's yep. I think it's eminently readable, and it's a really, you know, it's one of those. It's not like eighty pages long no. just because it feels like it needs to be. It's a yeah. short article that really uh, I think gets at these issues, and, and it's very provocative. fantastic. Yeah, like raises lots of really important issues and questions to think about. Did we do it some form of justice today, Adam? Or Oh, that know? was great. No, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. I don't know if there's anything else we can... We, we're going to have to have you back, I guess, once we... you know, I'm going to listen back to this again. And I'm going to be thinking about all the all the screw-ups that I made, all the things I wanted to ask you that I, and, and, and places I want to take it that we couldn't. So I'd love d- to do it again, so don't be bashful. I Believe me, I won't be. I won't Excellent. Be. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks. All right, I'm going to hit stop.